before the Passover, and uh, then Jesus, the crowds were waiting on him, and he comes finally into Jerusalem, and then we have this little section that we're going to be looking at this morning, where it says that there were Greeks now, the Greeks were uh, Gentiles, people who didn't believe, uh, well, people who weren't of the people of God, I should say. Um, and yet, there were Greeks there that wanted to see Jesus. And so, there's, there's, a, lot that we can, there's a lot that we can learn from that. Um, and Jesus addresses the fact that the Greeks want to speak with him um, by talking about, really, the cost of discipleship. And he, he lays out for, the, for everybody that's there uh, the, that cost, what it's going to take for the kingdom to go forward as, it, as he's intending for it to. Uh, and of course, what he intends to happen is that the gospel will go abroad to the Greeks. But the Jews are, the Jews are ignorant of this at that point, right? The, the, as you move forward in the New Testament, you end up seeing the story in Acts of Paul going out to the Gentiles. First you see Peter being sent to a few of the Gentiles. Um, but Jesus begins to explain what's going to happen with the Greeks in this passage. And he just sort of glancingly alludes to it a few times. But, but really what he's doing is he's drawing the big picture for everybody there. And that big picture is the cost of discipleship on the one hand, and on the other hand, the profit of discipleship, the, the outcome, the benefit, the fruit that comes from discipleship. So please stand as we read John 12, verses 20 through 33. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. <clears throat> Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this, to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So 
So the Greeks want to speak to Jesus. <clears throat> and it's clear that they want to be followers of Jesus. Now, when it says that there were some Greeks, you, that could mean a lot of things. It could mean uh, unbelievers, entirely non-Jewish, not, not, not God followers. But why would they be wanting to see Jesus, talk to Jesus? Um, that doesn't seem very likely. So then there's, this whole other, there's these whole other categories of non-Jew, Greeks, that were in some degree or another God-fearers. They were, uh, they were either proselytes, which is converts to the Jewish religion, um, or they were, uh, <clears throat> in several places in the Bible, in the New Testament, you see people who weren't Jews referred to as God-fearers. And so... Um, it seems clear that these Greeks who are spoken of here, they want to speak to Jesus because they are interested in following him. They're interested in being his disciples. And Jesus indicates at that point when the Greeks come to him and begin to want to speak to him, Jesus' response right at that moment is to indicate that the gospel is about to go forth into all the earth. Even to the dirty Gentiles. So you have these first few verses that we read where it says Greeks came to Philip. And, excuse me, if you think about other times that the disciples had... Uh, opportunities to mess up, if you will. Uh, when, the, when the children are brought to Jesus seeking blessing, right? The disciples don't bring them to Jesus, but instead send them away and say, don't bother him, right? But in this case, you've got this beautiful thing where they come first to Philip, and Philip then goes to Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip go to Jesus, and they deliver the message that there are, there are Greeks that want to see him. And that's, that's sweet. We shouldn't take it for granted that the disciples got this one right, right? And if you think about your own life, the number of times that you get things right and that you get them wrong, you're... You're grateful on the occasions when you, when you manage to decide, make a decision that's like obviously the right decision. Well, at least if you're anything like me, you can think back on all kinds of conversations, all kinds of decisions that you made, and you think in that one split second decision where you had to, where you had to decide what you were going to do, and you, and, and how many times do we do what we ought right then? Way, way too few, right? And so, here you've got Philip and Andrew coming and telling Jesus, as opposed to saying, bug off, Greeks. Well, Jesus' Jesus' answer in verse 23, you've got to to put together what's going on when when he answers. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now he continues on, but let's just look at that first sentence. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. On its face, if you don't understand, if you don't don't look into what Jesus is saying there, it's a non sequitur, right? Jesus, some Greeks want to see you. Now is the time for me to be glorified. Uh, Did you hear what we said? Some Greeks want to speak speak to you. (laughs) Well, it appears that Jesus may actually have been answering the Greeks, not just the disciples. 
when it says he answered them. This could be his address to the Greeks. We're not entirely sure whether he was speaking immediately in response to Philip and Andrew or whether he was talking to the Greeks, but he is addressing the idea of Greeks wanting to follow him. Okay, And that's what we've got to get through our minds. We've got to make sure we connect what Jesus is saying to the context of Philip and Andrew coming to him, whether it's speaking directly to the Greeks or whether it's speaking just to the disciples who had come and let him know that. He is addressing that question that they brought. So how is he addressing it? When he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, that is him speaking of the gospel going forth into all the earth. How is Jesus glorified? Well, Jesus is glorified by his good news being proclaimed in all the earth. The works that he accomplished for man being told to all the nations. That's the, that's the most central way that you see Jesus addressing the question of the Greeks right here. What do we do with Greeks who want to follow you? And Jesus says, it's, it's time now. The hour is come. This, this work is beginning to even include the Greeks. Which if you think back to our scripture lesson from Matthew, and you have that little, uh, that little passage where there's a woman who's not a Jew seeking help from him, and he says it's not good to give the, what is for the children to the dogs, right? This is, this is something that is very offensive to us, Right on, the, right on the surface. How dare he call her a dog, right? Um, but even that passage, what you see is an indication that he is, he is showing constantly a distinction between the people of God and the people of the world. And this change needing to take place. And so... Up until this point, it's the Jews are the people of God, and the Gentiles, the Greeks, everybody else are not the people of God. But here, he starts talking about the Son of Man, that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he starts talking about grain. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now that truly, truly, I say to you, that's an indication that Jesus sees what he's about to say as very important. This is how he introduces things where he's saying, hey, listen up. This is important. You need to make sure you understand this. Truly, truly, I say to you. And then he starts talking about how it works to plant things in the ground. Right? Well, this is one of the benefits of having gardens. right? That you can actually understand what he's talking about. Um, If you've never... If you've never planted anything, then you're not really going to understand what he's talking about. But I remember even in elementary school, one of the science experiments that we had to do was taking you know, a dried bean and a little styrofoam cup of dirt, or, or even just uh, what you first wet paper towels, right? And so you, you stick that wet bean between the paper towels, and what happens? It's dead. And it sprouts. It's not dead. It comes to life and it begins to produce a plant. And then if you don't do anything with that, if you don't bury that in the dirt, then it shrivels up and dies and that's the end of it. But if you bury that seed in the dirt, then what you see is that it comes up into a plant and that plant 
grows and itself begins to produce fruit. And there's all kinds of other beans, and then you can take those out and you can dry them. And you can, from that, from that one kid, you can have a bean for everybody in the next year, all 30 kids in the next year class, right? So why does Jesus feel the need to say, truly, truly, I say to you, listen up. If you take this bean and you put it in the dirt, it's going to grow. Well, the reason, that he's, the reason that he's intent on getting your attention before he says that is because he's contrasting that with holding on to it and not planting it, right? The contrast that he draws, listen to it again, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. So you've got two choices what you can do when your teacher hands you the bean, the grain of wheat. On the one hand, you can put it in the cup and plant it in the dirt, or you can stick it in your pocket and take it home and set it on your dresser, and there it'll sit. And it'll just always only be a bean alone. But if you go ahead and give it up by burying it, planting it, letting it be gone from you, be dead... That's the only way that it can actually grow up into a bigger plant and bear fruit. So, in some ways, uh, this is kind of like Jesus saying, listen carefully. I'm going to tell you something very important right now. You cannot have your cake and eat it too. It's like a, a common thing that, you, that you've heard, that you know, that's obvious, right? Have you heard that? You can't have your cake and eat it too? You kids know what that's talking about? No, they don't. Okay. Uh, well, it's really easy to understand. On your birthday, if you guys have a cake and it's sitting in front of you and you blow out the candles... Right? Either you can keep it right there, in which case you have the cake, holding it on the plate, you have it. Or you can cut it and eat it, and then it'll be gone. Right? But you can't have it and eat it. Either you're going to have it or you're going to eat it. You've got to have it on the plate or you, or you can eat it. But you can't do both. Once you eat it, you don't have it anymore. This is the same kind of thing that happens with these seeds. Either you can have, you can have the seed or you can plant it in the ground and, be, and it'll be gone. You can have the seed or it can, and it, can, it can be that one little seed or you can plant it and it can grow and be all kinds of seeds in the end. But that requires faith for us to do that, right? It doesn't require faith for you to uh, decide to go ahead and eat your cake, except for faith to believe that your mom knows how to make a decent cake, so it's better to go ahead and eat it because it's going to taste good. So as long as you have faith that the cake tastes good, you're going to go ahead and eat it, right? But with a seed, it's something a little bit different. He continues on in verse 25. He says, He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. So God calls us to follow Jesus, to follow Christ, and as we see, that requires us to be 
where Jesus is later on in the text. That's what Jesus says. To go through what he goes through. And what he, what he means when he says that a seed has to fall into the ground and die, he's talking about himself and he's talking about us. When he fell, when the seed falls into the ground and dies, that's a reference to him being crucified, his death on the cross, and his burial. And what he's saying is, unless that happens, there won't be any fruit. He would just remain alone. Now, in a very real sense, you think about Jesus, and he is the only begotten Son of God, right? The only man who, as I was trying to explain to Moses this week, the only man who did not sin. So, in the Catechism, one of the questions is, did, how does the question go? Did Jesus can't remember how the question goes. Did Jesus ever commit any sin, I think? It's a very simple question. No, he perfectly obeyed God all the time, is the answer. Moses' immediate answer to did Jesus ever commit any sin for weeks now has been, yes. Well, I mean, everybody sins, right? Well, Jesus is the only one who didn't sin. And so in that sense, he's the the seed. The only seed. The one and only seed. There's no other seed that exists until he dies. Until he's planted, there won't be any other seeds. And so the question is, should Jesus go ahead and die and be planted? Well, it's, it's a terrible idea. To kill Jesus. It's a terrible idea to bury the one and only seed that exists. To let that that one seed die. Except that it's only by burying that seed and letting that seed die that any other seeds come to be. In other words, that we are saved that we become sons of God ourselves. We are the seeds that come out from him having been dead, planted, given up. It required Jesus to be given up by God the Father to death in order for there to be life abundantly. Well, that's the seed, the original seed. But then what he says is that we are to do and be the same thing. You know that that's what Jesus is talking about, that he's really talking about his death, because he ends in in verse 32 of our passage, he says, I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. What does it mean when he's lifted up from the earth? It means him being crucified. And the implication is, obviously, that if he is not lifted up, he will not draw all men to himself. Right? If he is lifted up, if he is crucified, then there's fruit. If he is not lifted up, there won't be fruit. And that's why he says in verse 27, his soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. For this purpose, I came to this hour. This is the reason I came. And so he responds when he's facing death. He's talking about dying. He's talking about being planted. He's talking about his death. And it troubles him. Does it trouble you to think about 
giving up your life. Yes, of course it troubles you. And how are you going to respond? Well, we have to respond exactly the same way that Jesus responds. Shall I say then, anything but that God? Shall I say, you can have most of my life as long as I can keep this part of the seed? As long as I can keep this part of my life? I'll serve you as long as I can get a good job that earns plenty of money. I'll serve you as long as I can uh, be comfortable. I'll serve you as long as, and, and you just hold on to this one thing. Well, no. What Jesus is making clear is that it requires death to ourselves, death to this life, and that at that moment, then, of course your soul is troubled, just as Jesus' soul is troubled. It's a troubling thought. And shall you say, Father, save me from this hour? And he says, no, Father, glorify your name. Jesus demonstrates his commitment to doing the will of God. And that's something that we've seen throughout the book of John, right? Over and over again, he's talking about how he's doing the will of his Father. He's doing, he's being obedient to God in everything that he does. And he demonstrates his commitment to doing the will of God by submitting his life to the will of God. Knowing that that means death knowing that that means that he's going to be a seed that has to be dead and planted. And so he submits his life to the will of God. And then you have that beautiful promise. The response of God right there out loud with everybody listening. God the Father responds when he says, no, I'm not going to say, save me from this hour. I'm going to say, glorify your name. A voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. How has God glorified his name? At this point, you know, you think, this is a reference to the past and to the future. This takes place at a moment in time in Jesus' life where he says, no, I'm going to respond with, Father, glorify your name. And God's answer is, I have and I will. So you've got to, on the one hand, if he says, I have, you've got to look prior to that moment to see how God has glorified his name. And then when he says, and I will, you've got to look forward from that moment to see how God is glorified and glorifying his name since then. Well, one of the beautiful things that you see is that in the past, God had glorified himself by calling the Israelites as a chosen people for himself, taking them out of the nations and making them a people set apart to himself, right? That's the past at that moment. Then the future, what you see is him also extending that call into the Greeks. So this, this continues the, 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 um, the beauty of Jesus' response to the Greeks He's, he is still talking to the Greeks. He's still answering them. God is answering them. He's saying, I have glorified myself by making there be seed, by making there be a godly offspring. And I will continue in the future to glorify myself. There will be more. There will be more fruit. There will be more seeds planted. There will be more plants growing. It will extend even to 
the Greeks. And Jesus says that God's response, the voice coming out of heaven, wasn't for him. He already knew that God glorified his name and that he would in the future. Jesus says that it came for those people who were listening. Verse 30, the voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. So what does it mean that he then continues and says, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Well, what Jesus is doing is he is connecting his death, burial, and resurrection to the destruction of, the defeat of the enemy, the ruler of this world. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Well, this world, judgment being upon this world, refers back to what he had said earlier where he says, verse 25, he who loves his life loses it and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. So what Jesus is doing is he's laying out for us two possibilities. That we're loving our life in this world or that we are dying to this world and that, that then we will become seeds. But if we love our life in this world, he says you're going to die. And not only are you going to die, but judgment is coming upon this world. So he makes, it, he makes it clear which one you want. You want to be serving God. You want to be giving up this life because nothing good is going to come out of this life. Nothing good is going to come out of this world. This world is being defeated. This world is being destroyed. And so Jesus says, we're faced with a choice. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So, the bad side of the option is keeping your life having the things of this world, ultimately dying, judgment, right? But the good side is following Christ, honoring God, dying to this world, but receiving eternal life and being honored by the Father. That stuff is all laid out over the course of this passage. The, 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 the negative side and the positive side, but it's all preceded by that warning that it has to start with death. It has to start with the death of Jesus, and then it has to proceed to each and every seed that desires to bear fruit has to itself die. That's us. What does it mean for us to die to this world? Well, one of the things that he says is that it means that we are to be where Jesus is through service to him, right? Verse 26, he really gives the explanation of verse 25. Verse 25, 
is he who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. But then verse 26 says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So what does it mean to be where Jesus is through service to him? Well, the Sunday school answer is to come to church, right? If you want to be where Jesus is, go to church. Go to church because Jesus said, I tell you the truth, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am, right? So, so Jesus is here. And so it is very true, as most Sunday school answers are, right? That if you want to be where Jesus is, you go to church, you go to where people are gathering together in his name because he has promised that he will be there. So yes, it does mean being in church. And if you think about a non-Christian beginning to be curious about what it means to be a follower of Jesus... Reason would require him, on the one hand, to study the words of Jesus, to read the Bible, right? And to spend time with people who know Jesus. So a non-believer that wants to find out what it means to be a follower of Jesus is going to read his words and spend time with his followers. In other words, he's going to come to church. Right? Jesus is present in our midst when we gather together in his name. But of course, it doesn't just mean come to church. Because what did I just get done explaining? Well, it's possible for non-believers to come to church just because they're curious about what's going on, right? Coming to church doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. Being in a Christian family doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. In fact, if you think about it, Judas was with Jesus in a way that we never have been, right? Judas was with Jesus, but not serving him. And we have to recognize that it's perfectly possible for us as well to be with Jesus, to be in a Christian family, to know all of what the Bible says, to go to church every week, to be with him in all of those ways, and yet not to be serving him. That's what Judas did. And so in that sense, we would be with Jesus, but not with him. So there has to be something more to being with Jesus than simply the physical presence here this morning, than simply physically being born into a Christian home. Well, it does. It means much more than that. As I said, this passage is largely about the cost of discipleship and then the promise of the benefit of discipleship, right? And so what is the cost? Well, the cost is that you've got to die. The cost is that the seed has to be planted in the ground. And it's for the sake of the fruit that will come from it that we go ahead and plant. You don't plant a seed if you don't want the plant to grow. But if you want the plant to grow, if you want there to be fruit in your life, you have to plant the seed. That's what the cost is. The cost is being planted. The cost is dying to yourself. The cost is giving up this world and the 
all of the benefits that it contains. But the profit that comes is the fruit that flows from being planted. So Judas didn't have any fruit, right? So in that sense, Judas was never planted. He was never with Jesus in the way that the other disciples were. Now, we know the other disciples were all sinners, right? And that they all ran away at the end. But there's a difference between running away and betraying, right? And so my point isn't to say, well, you know, if you run away, there's not going to be any fruit. Rather, my point is to say, you've got to make sure, in spite of your sin, that you know which one you are. I was talking to somebody this week about uh, a PC USA church somebody goes to. And he described to me that the reason this person goes to this church is because it's very comfortable for them. There's never any challenge to this person's worldview or to their continuing to live their life exactly the way that they want to live their life, right? Well, if you think about what the PCUSA promotes and stands for, it includes abortion, it includes homosexual marriage and promoting all sorts of sexual immorality. That is a betrayal of Jesus Christ, right? And so... What we want to do is we want to think that there's a way for us to be with Jesus but not have the uncomfortable thought of actually dying to ourselves. We want, to, we want there to be a way for us to be with Jesus, serving him, but that there's not going to be this this painful loss in this world for the sake of gaining the fruit of the life to come. Or we want there to be a way for us to uh, never be planted and yet bear fruit. But if we are never planted we will end up being like Judas. We will be betraying the work of Jesus, even as we claim to be with him. And that's really what's happening in many churches. And I I pick on the PCUSA today just because it came up in conversation this week. All right, But I'm not picking on them. I'm just warning that that is the outcome Very quickly, what we do when we turn aside from the cost, from there being any cost to us, we start to seek after our own comfort in this life, is that very quickly you're going to end up someplace like that. You're not going to go and find a place where uh, they challenge you in a different way. Does that make sense? The moment you are intent on not being challenged, on only being comfortable, on not seeing your sin, not being warned against it, not having to actually fight it, then you're going to end up in the class of those who have not been planted and those who are betraying, actively betraying Jesus. And so that's part of why being with Jesus means much more than just going to church. 
Being with Jesus means being with and serving the people that Jesus loves. And this is one of the ways that we end up recognizing, uh, we end up seeing our own sin. Because when it comes to the rubber meeting the road and actually being with people that God loves that make us uncomfortable, we realize, wait a minute, I'm not sure I actually want to do this. Who are the people that Jesus loves? Well, they're the, the least of these. Right? When he says he came to be a doctor for those who are sick and not for those who are well, you see it in his life that he spends time with the poor, the drug addicts, the outcasts, the sinners, the disreputable. Those who cannot pay you back. And really, that is, that, there's a cost to that, isn't there? If you think about actually ministering to any of those people, then there's going to be a dying to self. I remember the first time I considered the thought of uh, ending up with bed bugs in our house. Bed bugs are really bad in Cincinnati, right? That's what I've heard. Okay. So, about the only place where bed bugs are worse than Cincinnati is in the high density apartment complexes where the international refugees are living. And if you're going to have anything to do with international refugees, the immediate risk that you're facing is bedbugs. And that's a miserable thought, right? You look at the pictures online and and then you and then you look at the then you look at more pictures online and the more pictures you look at the more horrified you get and the more horrified you get the more you think well there's got to be a way to prevent this right and then the and then you start reading about the not being possible to prevent it and the cost that comes if you actually get bed bugs in your house. And the next moment, you're, you're, you're rethinking the idea of whether or not you're actually going to invite those people over to your house. Because then you, you're reading about how bed bugs are transmitted, right? Now, my point isn't to... Uh, make you scared of bedbugs, if you haven't done all of this stuff that I have done. Okay? Um, my point is that with bedbugs comes dying to yourself. And it really, it touches on all kinds of areas of your life. It means, it means thinking about physical discomfort, it means thinking about financial cost to yourself. It means thinking about, being, uh, about there being ramifications relationally with other people. I mean, you should have heard our, uh, <clears throat> our realtor talking about people who had spread bed bugs to other people. And the, and the necessity of shunning people who had bed bugs, basically. And so there's, you look at just one little thing like that, and there's this cost across the board. 
Now, it just so happens that we got bedbugs in Ethiopia. And I got to see them up close. And the bites and the attempts at treating it in a third world nation. They weren't very successful. Well, was it worth the risk of getting bedbugs to go pick up Moses? Of course. But, you know, that's this, like, here, I can, you know, I can pick them up and hold them here for you. Here, was, is Moses worth it? And, of course, you all love Moses. You say, yes, we love Moses, so obviously it was worth it. But there's this physical, tangible kid that we love. And plus, I got to leave the bed bugs over there. But if you're talking about here and now, if you're talking about costs that are going to potentially stay with us, if you're talking about costs that are uh, going to really make our wife uncomfortable with the decisions that we've made or that are going to really mean sacrifice on the part of our children or that are really going to mean, uh, well, you name it, dying to self, whatever that looks like for you, that's what it means for there to be a seed planted You can't have the seeds planted until that dying to self happens. So, in this physical world, we have the fruit of Moses in our family for the various costs of adoption, right? But in the church, do we want to see that kind of fruit? Do we want to see others added to our number? Yeah, we want to see that kind of fruit. And will there be a cost to it? Will it require us as a church to die to ourselves? Yes, it absolutely will. There will not be any fruit. There will not be any profit unless the cost is paid, the investment of planting. So what does it look like for you right now to be serving the people that Jesus loves? And that starts with his church. But it immediately extends not to the people who can pay you back. It immediately extends to those who can't pay you back, who are outside the church. those who are going to be the most uncomfortable for you to serve. So for kids, that means at school, among your friends, you are sticking up for the underdog, the kid that's being bullied. You end up being that kid's friend. That's the cost. Or, you know, that's the, the, that's the action. The cost, of course, is that you won't be cool. You'll lose the friends that had the cool toys that you, got, that you really enjoyed playing with. And you'll end up with a friend who is poor and doesn't have the cool things and that other people laugh at and mock, and that if you're friends with them, they laugh and mock you. Now, 
There's always the least of these. Even in the most, even in the richest nation in the world, the richest nation the world has ever seen, there's the least of these. Jesus promises that the poor will always be with us. The poor are here, even if they're richer than most of the rest of the rich throughout history, right? Poor are still here. There's still the least of these. There's the least of these at Mars Hill, right? There's one other thing that I want to talk about with regard to being where Jesus is. It's not just being with the people that he loves and loving them. It's also being in the battles that he is fighting. The PC USA makes a point of uh, talking about how they are there for the least of these. And they even categorize the least of these properly in most cases, in most senses. All right? But what they're intent on doing is not actually ever speaking the gospel to those people not actually ever planting any seeds. Well, we can do the same kind of thing. We can make a point of fighting the battles that the church has had to face in the past, but not fighting the battles that the church is called to face today. Well, Jesus is, Jesus is leading his church. And so if you want to be where Jesus is, you're going to be following where he's leading. Not where the battle isn't engaged anymore. This is a theme that you've probably heard me talk about before or others in our circle of friends, but... I just want you to think about Jesus talking about death, talking about dying to self, and about how good the Pharisees looked at that time, making a big stand of standing up for the things that were the good conservative positions of battles that had already been fought about whether there is a resurrection and whether there are such things as angels and demons. All kinds of things that the Pharisees were on the right side. You follow what I'm saying? And yet they were not with Jesus, were they, in the end? And so it's possible for us, likewise, to make a point of... uh, looking at the battles of yesterday and making sure we sign ourselves up on the right side of those, but being unwilling to face the cost of fighting the current battles today and seeing what they're going to, what they're going to mean for us, for our lives, for the work that we've done in our lives. And if we're going to have to say goodbye to some of those things that we've built up or some of those relationships that we've established that's what, that's what dying to self looks like, isn't it? And that's a scary thought. But that's what it means to be planted. And the fruit that comes from it, we cannot forget. If it dies, it bears much Christ has gone ahead of us in this. He died. And the fruit that he has borne in this world will be his glory for all eternity. All of the crowns, all of the rewards, all of the glory and all of the honor in heaven are his. 
And yet if anyone serves him, the Father will honor that man. What beautiful, beautiful promises we have when we're called to die. He says, come die with me and receive the crown of life. Receive the honor of the Father and receive what you really want if you're a follower of Jesus, which is the fruit that he has created becomes ours. We become a part of it. Look to that fruit. Look to that honor. Look to the joy of seeing that happen. And die to yourself. Let's pray.